Our reading this morning is from Luke 24. I'll actually start at 23, verse 50. Just a few words of introduction about this reading this morning. To talk a little bit about the timeline of what led up to the moment on Sunday morning, Easter morning, the first Easter when the women found the empty tomb. It was on Thursday night of the week that Jesus had dinner with his disciples. He was betrayed that night in the Garden of Gethsemane and taken. It was early in the morning on Friday when he was tried before the authorities. And at about noon on Friday is when he was crucified. That Friday was a very important day for Jerusalem because it was the day before the Sabbath, which normally means there's a lot of activity that goes on early in the day on Friday. A lot of preparations need to be made for the Sabbath. Moms have to go out and go to the market and have enough food and go shopping so that they, because they can't go shopping on the Sabbath day. Uh, if there's a special meal that needs to be prepared, and in this case there was because it was the high feast of Passover, it was even more of a preparation day that Friday when Jesus was killed. Even now if you go to Jerusalem, at about noon on Friday, this, it's like the country shuts down, at least for the observant Jews. Uh, a lot of the shops start to close. Public transportation just basically stops running except for some very emergency types of transportation. The airport still runs, international airport still runs, but just about everything else shuts down and it becomes extremely quiet. Very few cars, cars on the road, people not really walking around all that, that much. And the reason is that the Sabbath actually begins at sundown on Friday night. When the sun sets on Friday night, it is now Saturday, the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath goes until sundown on Saturday evening, and then it's Sunday, the first day of the week. So there were all sorts of things that needed to happen in the minds of, of three people or groups of people before sundown on Friday night. Now, this, in the season of that, uh, of that time, it was in the spring. The latitude and longitude of Palestine at that time of the year meant that sundown was sometime between 6.30 and 7.30 p.m., just like it is for us. Last night, our sunset was about 7.30 p.m. Um, and so there were a lot of things that needed to happen because once the sun set, you couldn't work anymore. There were three groups, as I said. One group were the leaders of the Jews. And they went and they asked for permission that the crucifixion of Jesus and the two men hanging on either side of him could be sped up so that they would die before the Sabbath began. Why? Well, so that they could go and enjoy their Sabbath and not worry to themselves whether Jesus was dead yet or not. They really wanted to see him dead. Kind of think of it this way as you have all these things you want to do before Thanksgiving dinner, like set the table and go shopping and get that last bit of cranberry stuffing and all that rest of that stuff. And so you make sure you get all that stuff done so that you can, once you sat down at the the Thanksgiving meal, there's nothing else to worry about. And so they asked that these crucifixions be sped up. And uh, what is very interesting and amazing is that the Romans complied or went along with this. The whole point of crucifixion is that it is slow. That's the point of crucifixion. Otherwise, you would just chop somebody's head off or, and be done with it. Crucifixion was supposed to be really slow and painful. It was a deterrent to anyone doing what people were crucified for. Stealing things, 
starting an insurrection against the Romans. The whole point of it was it was supposed to last a long time. It could last days sometimes. It could. It did. So that the Romans sped up the crucifixions is amazing that they did that. They did that probably because they wanted to accommodate the Jewish leaders. There was, at that time in the history between Rome and Israel, there was a real interest on Rome's part in accommodating the Jews. And so they allowed them to build this giant temple, which was actually one of the largest monuments in all of the Roman world. But it wasn't even to one of their gods. It was to the Jewish gods. So there was an accommodation going on at that time. So that group got what they wanted, and the soldiers went, and they broke the legs of the two men on either side of Jesus, and that would speed up the crucifixion because they could no longer support their own weight and the, the hanging down. Um, if you want to read this medical account of the crucifixion, it's, it's really disturbing. It's excruciating. But that would speed it up. They came to Jesus, and they found that he was already dead, and they tested this by driving a spear into his side, and they, they punctured his pericardium, which was full of water. That was a sign that he had died. He had basically drowned in, in the... It is disturbing. It is. He had drowned. His heart could not beat any longer. He was simply worn out. Jesus died without his legs being broken. And he died around 3 o'clock. That's according to the scriptures. So that was one group that had an interest in meeting a deadline by sundown on Friday. Now, there was another person named Joseph of Arimathea. He was part of the council that had sentenced Jesus, but he didn't really take part in what they did. He did not want Jesus to remain on the cross during the Sabbath. He thought that would be a terrible thing. And so he went and asked for permission to take Jesus down from the cross. And also that would be against Roman custom because the point not only of it taking a long time is that you also leave somebody up there for a long time as kind of an advertisement for Roman justice. But they consented to that as well. Pilate consented to that. And so Joseph of Arimathea was able to take the body of Jesus down to wrap it in a giant linen shroud and to have it placed in a tomb that he himself owned, probably not too far from the place where the cross was. And he was able to do that before sundown on Friday night. The third group are the women who had been following Jesus all along since the early days of his ministry in Galilee. Unlike the disciples who all ran away from the tomb with the exception of the Apostle John, the women stayed and watched Jesus die. They stayed for the whole thing. And they decided that they wanted to preserve his body, clean it up. They didn't want him to be in the grave in such a bloodied and terrible state. And so they wanted to come and lovingly wash him and prepare his body for burial by packing it with spices and and other kinds of ointments. They watched as Jesus came down from the cross. And they watched where he was laid in the tomb. And they remembered where that was. And they were not able to begin their process of taking care of Jesus' body that they had planned for. They had to go home at sundown. They had to wait all the next day until Saturday night when it was sundown so that they could do the work. Embalming a body is considered work. You can't do it on the Sabbath. But by sundown on Saturday, it was dark. So they had to wait until Sunday morning to go to the tomb to find the body of Jesus. Just imagine as I read the scriptures that these women have been waiting for 35, maybe 36 hours from sundown on Friday to sunrise on Sunday to go and do something they felt very passionate about, washing and anointing the body of Jesus.
So with that introduction, let's go to our reading. Luke 23. Now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph, who, though a member of the council, had not agreed to their plan and action. He came from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen cloth, and laid it in a rock-hewn tomb where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed, and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested, according to the commandment. Chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood before them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they, all, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home, amazed at what had happened. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for your risen Son, Jesus Christ. We ask that you add blessing to the reading of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine that for 36 hours, you've been waiting to do a very important task. You've been waiting to embalm and anoint and wash the body of Jesus. This is a big deal for you because you've been following him for months, maybe even years. You've followed him quite a distance from Galilee all the way down here. You've supported him out of your own funds. You've listened to every word that's come out of his mouth all these last months. You were there when he was murdered by the Romans. You saw his body die. You saw it taken down. You saw it buried. And you had to wait at that moment because the law said you couldn't work anymore. 36 hours. Friday night, all day Saturday, Saturday night. Can you imagine that maybe you didn't get very much sleep those nights, tossing and turning, going and preparing, finding spices when the market was open later on Saturday evening after the markets were, after the sun had set. You were all ready. You had come to the tomb. You were ready to find the body of Jesus and you were ready to do for it the final thing, to treat it with dignity, to give it a proper burial. 
And now imagine that everything that you'd been planning to do for the last 36 hours, you could no longer do. Why? You get there and the tomb is empty. There's nothing in there. It says that the women did look inside the tomb. They, they even went into it, which is hard to do. Can you imagine that this tomb wasn't really that large? In artists' renditions of the tomb, it's this sort of massive cavern, you know, with all sorts of beautiful candles lit in the corner and things like that. If, you're, if your job is to cut a rock tomb uh, as a sort of a workman, you're not going to make it much bigger than a coffin, are you? You're not going to make it much bigger than something that would hold a body, right? It's not this giant thing. So it's not that likely that Jesus' body was hidden in a corner somewhere or underneath something. This was a small tomb, about the size of a coffin. They went into it. They gave it a thorough inspection. They looked up and down. All they found was a linen cloth that he had been wrapped in, set aside, but no Jesus, no body. Everything that they had come, they had probably brought maybe even hundreds of pounds of these spices and ointments with them. There were quite a few of the women. All that work, all that preparation, you get there, and there's nothing to do. The word that the Bible uses, and I read from the New Revised Standard Version, is that the women were perplexed because the body wasn't there. They were perplexed. Now, that's not a word that we use every day. I don't use it every day. If I did, that, means, that would mean that there would be something terribly wrong in my life if I was perplexed all the time, right? The Greek word for this is aporeo. And the root of that word is pore. The same word that we use, it means a hole or an opening. You have pores in your skin that allow things to go in and out of it. A porous membrane allows something to move through it and to come back through it. But to be aporeo means there is no pore. There is no way to get through to where you want to go. And that's the word that describes how the women experienced this. It was an emotional state. It was a mental state of not being able to get to where they wanted to go. They were aporeo. They were perplexed. They were at a loss. That's how some translations have it. They did not know what to do. They could not get where they wanted to go. Where they wanted to go was to bury Jesus. They could not get there because there was no body. While the women were still perplexed about this, suddenly two men show up. doesn't say that they're angels, but... We pretty much are sure that they're angels. And they, um, they have this very gentle, I hope even joyful, and maybe with a smile on their face, but it's a rebuke of sorts. It goes like this. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? You're looking in the wrong place. It's no wonder you're perplexed. It's no wonder that you can't get where you want to go. You're looking in the wrong place. You're looking for the wrong thing. You're looking for a dead body. You won't find one. Now, they were frightened of these angels, but the angels kept on. And the angels appealed to their memory. In essence, the angels are saying, you have enough information to figure this one out. Do you remember way back in Galilee, those many months, maybe even years ago, when you started going around with him, that Jesus himself said, the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners. And if you were here a couple weeks ago, 
we've heard that to be handed over like that meant to be handed, to be given as a risk by God that the world could do what it wanted with his son. That was a risk that God took. That the Son of Man would be handed over into the hands of sinners and be crucified. And on the third day, rise again. Now, I want everybody to go like this with me. Oh! All right, one, two, three. Oh! You can just imagine the women in a circle going, oh, like I could have had a V8, but not that. But, oh, yeah, you know, even back in Galilee, he said, he said that. And then another one said, I remember that too. And then there was that other time he said it. And by the time they were done counting, they said, you know what? I think he said this about four times. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. And then I'll raise again. Don't you remember? And they go, oh, that's right. And so they put every, all the evidence that they had with them together. An empty tomb, two angels, and their memory of what Jesus said to make sense of all that. And they said, of course he's risen. And they became believers at that moment. They started to believe in everything that Jesus said right at that moment. What's so great is that it was the women who got this first, isn't it? But they were perplexed because they came there for the wrong reason. It's so funny that God meets them and tells them the right information even though they were there for the wrong reason. They were looking for the living among the dead. They were acting as if Jesus was dead. They were not living in the memory of what Jesus had said or in the faith that that was true. They were living in doubt and they were living in hopelessness. They came to bury a body. And when you bury a body, you put it in the ground and you walk away from it. And after a while, you forget it. That's what they were there to do. That's why there was a gentle but hopefully joyful rebuke. You're here for the wrong reason. You're doing the wrong thing. Remember what Jesus told you. So they finally got it, which is good. They go back to the disciples, and it gives us a list of all the women that were there. A bunch of them. They go back to the disciples and they say, hey, this is the story. We met two angels. The tomb is empty. Remember what Jesus told us? And we come into another wall of doubt, another wall of perplexity with the disciples. To them, it says the disciples thought that this was an idle tale. Other translations have uh, chatter, that this was chatter, that this was drivel. The Greek word there is leros. It's where we get our word delirium. Oh, the women are delirious. And there is some sexism going on in this room, no doubt. The fact that these men could not hear the very first sermon about the risen Christ as having come from a woman must, must be something we have to pay attention to, I think. The women preached the first sermon of a risen Christ. And the men thought it was leros. Now, leros is the word, it only appears once here in the New Testament, and there's a good reason for that, because it's not a polite word. It's not a dinner table word. You don't say that word leros 2,000 years ago at the dinner table in Palestine unless you want a mouthful of soap. It's, it's a little stronger than drivel or idle talk. Uh, maybe somebody in Texas would call it a tall tale, but a rancher in Texas would look down at the ground and go, it's something else. 
That's why you wouldn't say it. The women came and said, the tomb is empty. And the men said, that sounds like a load of Laros to us. Wow. You know, it's amazing how far the disciples still have to go. They probably, even when they see the resurrected Christ a week later, and most of them have to wait a week to see him. Thomas has to wait two weeks. They still don't even get it. Even until Pentecost, they finally get it. Five, uh, seven weeks later. It's crazy how slow the disciples are. They all thought that that was an idle tale. And it says, and they did not believe them. Except for one. In another gospel, we read that maybe there was a second. Peter and John got up and ran to the tomb, and they found it empty. Not, mar- not much was true. So they, had a, they too had an empty room, a tomb, and they had the memory of it. And Peter went away wondering to himself what all this meant. So interesting that in the early church, there were some who already believed it, and others who hadn't quite grasped it yet, and others who rejected it flat out because they were living like Jesus was dead. And that's how they were acting. I think that's the problem for all the actors in this story. First the women, then the men, the disciples. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why are you acting and living like Jesus is dead when he's alive? And I think this is true for us. This is what we come to Easter with, if we're honest with ourselves, is most of the time we live like Jesus is still dead. I'm going to say that again. Most of the time, we live like Jesus is still dead. We don't live into the truth of the resurrection. We don't live into the hope of the resurrection. We come to the tomb with our hopelessness. And thank God we stand perplexed because God won't let our hopelessness go through to the next stage. But instead, he puts us in a new direction. He is not here. He is risen. I want to tell you that there was a time in my life where I was living, truly living, as if I thought Jesus was dead. About 20 years ago, I lost my father to cancer. And some other tragedies followed on along that in my family. And while I knew God was there and I knew God somehow had his hand on me, I did not live as a person of hope in the core of my being. I did not live as if Jesus was alive. I lived as if Jesus was dead. And the world looks so different then. The world looks hopeless. And when you live like Jesus is dead, you pursue only pleasure because there's nothing tomorrow worth worrying about. So you get everything you want now and in this moment. When you live like Jesus is dead, you don't think you have hope for a life beyond this life. When you live like Jesus is dead, you give in 
to the cynicism of this world and its culture of death. That's what this world is. You give in to that because there's no, nothing else. There's no alternative. That's what life looks like when you live like Jesus is dead, when you go. Thank God that he perplexes us. You know, you may be here this morning feeling the same thing. There's no accident that you're here. It's important that you're here. God brought you here. You may be here ready to bury the body so that you can walk away from it and leave it there in the ground and go and live your life as if Jesus was dead. God wants to perplex you right now. He wants to perplex you right now. He wants you to be at a loss so that you cannot get to where you think you need to go. He wants to give you a different way. He wants to say this, why are you looking for the dead, the living among the dead? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why are you living as if Jesus is dead? Live because he's alive. He is not here. He is risen. Remember all the times he told you. Remember what he said about this day. When you live like Jesus is alive, everything changes. Your world changes. The world's still cynical, but you can transform the world. When you live like Jesus is alive, there is hope for tomorrow. There's a really big tomorrow. There's life after this life. As the Apostle Paul said, the last thing that Jesus destroys is death itself. Death has no more power over any of us. When you live like Jesus is alive, death dies, and its power over you does too. And when you live like Jesus is alive, you can enjoy many things in this world, but you have the wisdom to know that there's something more important that God has for you than even pleasure. There's a new life, a new hope. And there are other people who have not yet believed that you can go and tell. And you're going to go and tell some of them, and they're going to say, that's kind of a load of drivel. That's okay. You've planted that seed. They'll get a chance in a week or in two weeks or in seven weeks to hear that word again and experience it for themselves. We need to live like Jesus is alive because he is. That's what the angels said. That's what they all found out the next week. Jesus is raised. Jesus is alive. If you're here this morning and you're living like Jesus is dead, I want you to do four things. Come to the tomb. Find that it's empty. Remember what Jesus said. Live like Jesus is alive. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that your son Jesus is alive. Thank you for perplexing us out of our hopelessness into life. Amen.